0: The Football Index podcast is supported by footballindextrader.co.uk, the best site for in-depth scouting and trading Stretchy. Not many people have the time to analyse every game. That's why hundreds of veterans and new traders alike get FIT to do the heavy lifting for them, providing easy-to-read analysis of every match day from an FI perspective. If you want to see more, as an exclusive offer for FIGCAST listeners, you can give the site a try with a 25% discount on your first month with the code FIGCAST. When it comes to about £3 a week, which is the price of a very cheap pint, so do go check it out over on footballindextrader.co.uk. Here's the legal stuff from Football Index. FI is a gambling product available to customers in certain territories aged 18 or over. The content of this podcast has not been approved by Football Index, but they do listen to the show to keep me on my toes. Please remember to only gamble what you can afford to lose, begambleaware.org, and when the fun stops stop hello and welcome back to the foot limits podcast episode 172 if you guys haven't already checked out my youtube channel please go have a look i'm making like two to three videos a week now adding some pretty cool animations as well so please do go help support me out there Go click that and show your love there and let me know what you think if you guys have got any feedback for me do let me know in the last episode of the podcast i was joined by martin grelia or grills as many of you know him on twitter and the fig discord wherever you uh, spend your time and it was a great episode and on the previous Cast extra again another great show with uh, the big man panda so that keeps tracking on and this coming or this episode that you've just listened to or you will have listened to i'm doing a bit of a uh, time travel is going to be like a kind of hell in the cell type thing where we eliminate guest speakers which is going to be pretty weird but i'm sure it's already gone really well again i'm trying to do the time traveling thing um today i'm joined by someone who last joined me on the podcast in summertime around august uh football index machine how are you doing mate
1: good mate how are you
0: yeah not too bad not too bad it's been a weird time it you know literally ever since you came on this podcast everything's gone bad
1: <laughs> i know um hopefully this isn't uh a second omen um yeah i know it's interesting i, I think it, yeah, it must have been around august um and you know probably september through to around christmas was you know, some of the most trying times so you know hopefully uh hopefully this isn't the new peak um and uh yeah, the recovery you've seen has a, has a bit more legs this time.
0: Why don't you remind people a little bit more about yourself? You've got kind of a, a very interesting background, and then also a bit more about your football index journey.
1: Yeah, so in terms of background, um, I started off uh, working in finance initially um, in investment banks. Um, there, I was working in sort of a combination of trading strategy, um, building a lot of sort of quantitative um, models uh, to. Across a few different markets, um, and then made the tr- transition over um, to what is called the buy side. Um, so essentially, working on the investment management side, um, working in hedge funds. So there, like the job, a little bit different. But you know, you're actually you're actually managing money rather than just coming up with strategies. So um, we're running like a reasonable size portfolio across a few different markets, um, and really sort of cut my teeth in you know, thinking about how do you build um, systematic or, you know, quantitative driven strategies um, with a few different um, techniques and um, sort of aims, some short term, some long term, generally around the sort of one month to six month horizon would be a kind of typical one, but really depends on the markets we're trading. Uh, and then since then moved into the tech sector. So um, a lot of the sort of skills you build up in quantitative research and finance are you know, very applicable to what tech companies are doing. In fact, a lot of the tech companies are actually pioneering a lot of the, the methods um, inside data science and machine learning. So transition to there um, and are doing very sort of different analysis now. It's much more around um, understanding sort of customer segments and real sort of like product strategy. Um, but you know, you're still using a lot of the same models, um, uh various data science techniques, machine learning techniques, um, and what's really called computational statistics. Um and my journey to um the index has I think like most people, it was just the perfect intersection of um interests and um uh, skill set. I think, you know, I've I've been playing um fantasy football for a number of years, um, did, you know, reasonably okay, tried to um, implement some more data-driven strategies. But, um, you know, apart from the occasional 20 quid on the shared pool with your mates, um, wasn't really getting too much out of it beyond, you know, relative to to the kind of effort I was putting in. Um, so when this came along, um, nearly two years ago now, um, it just, you know, really piqued my interest This idea that You can, you know, model some strategies like you would on traditional stock or equity markets. Um, but really your, your, the data you're using and the strategy you're coming up with, um, are geared around football. And, um, I think again, like, I'm sure most people would say who use it, it's really changed the way I sort of look and enjoy football. Um, you find yourself, you know, just watching some shitty Liga 1 uh, team and knowing half the players just because. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the port you're looking, you know, games you'd never look at before. So it's really, it's really helped, um, you know, enjoy enjoy the game on.
0: And you've taken some of the talents you've had with kind of previous escapades in your in your jobs to create some football index related content i had a few people reach out to me like fig this is a bit strange like why isn't this player and this player in this guy's newsletter that you're having on the show and i i was like i I don't know let's pick his brains today like how how does all the kind of modeling and and analysis you've done so far work
1: yeah um so i've tried a few different methods and kind of converged on one i think um it works best and is most appropriate for the game as it is today. Um, and that's one that's, that's based on um, simulation or more specifically something called Bayesian simulation. Um, so, you know, the the game has, and the game mechanisms have changed a lot in the past six months. And so I've taken a little bit of a sort of backseat, just kind of understanding what these new mechanisms are. Um, but I think, you know, after reflecting a lot, it's, um, it's clear to me that, um, some kind of simulation-based method is is the best way to play this, um, and focusing almost exclusively on on PB, obviously with the IPD removal that you know that emphasises emphasises that strategy even more. Um, in terms of the modelling itself, I think just at a high level, essentially what I'm trying to do is um, take each individual player in each individual game, um, and for each Game week in the future, essentially simulates um, how what is the likelihood of various outcomes. Um, turn that into a distribution, um, and then your distribution is essentially a metric of um, probability of success of success. So, really, it's a game of understanding probability and understanding expected value. If you think about what expected value is, it's um, the dividends on offer for a given game multiplied by the probability of that player winning. So the approach I try to use at this Bayesian simulation is essentially saying, okay, let's treat every player as almost one data point. Let's take their PB scores. Let's take a few different variables that are likely to inform or predict PB, such as the club they play for, the league they play in, their position, maybe some underlying stats as well, whether they're playing at home, so on and so forth. Um, and You're essentially running, you're modeling their PB score as a function of these variables. But the simulation part comes in when you're basically saying, okay, I'm going to run, I'm going to simulate each of these games thousands of times. I'm going to have, let's say there's 50 players playing on one given game day, because you're simulating those things thousands of times, what you get back is essentially a probability estimate of um, each player's score distribution. So my first simulation, I run this model on all 50 players. Um, I get back, let's say that, you know, Bruno, um, the first simulation, Bruno wins. The second simulation, Kevin De Bruyne wins. Third simulation, Bruno wins, so on and so forth. Then the number of times that each player is winning is essentially their probability of winning. Then you extrapolate that times um, the dividends on offer. And then you're basically just pushing that out all across future fixtures which gives you essentially a metric scoring metric for um what is the expected value of that player every given time so yeah hopefully that's not too too much in the weeds um, (laughs) and how
0: has that worked how has that worked out for you so far in terms of your personal trading strategy because of course uh PB wins aren't always, or expected PB wins aren't always directly linked to price. So, for example, someone like Ronaldo could win on a gold day match day and and not really rise more than a couple of percent perhaps due to age or bad fixtures and that that isn't exclusive to him or exclusive to players of who are older but but usually that is the case so if you have a guy who's like you know a, a Phil Foden recently starts winning dividends and suddenly everyone's like wow he's 20 so maybe in like three years if he does this like every two weeks then you're in in the money right um has that had any impact on your outlook on you know how you've built your portfolio
1: yeah massively i think it's a it's a good point it's um so the way i I kind of look at it is i'm in the business of um simulating the probability of any player player agnostic what is the probability of them winning on a given game day and then across um so a big part of the model is um, using, you know, fixtures over the next, uh, month six weeks. You go beyond there and, you know, the fixtures aren't fully set. So it's a bit, it's a bit tricky. But the reason why that is important is because if you're, um, you know, if you're playing like a six game silver, ga- silver day, then the expected value is obviously much higher than, um, someone who's playing on a, on a gold day who doesn't have those kind of peak scores, you know, fairly, fairly intuitive. So, um, so it's important to, so the models that I focus on is, um, understanding probability of a given game day, extrapolating that out into, um, a set of fixtures. Um, and then that provides me with my, my kind of scoring matrix of of uh, of players. And then it's when the the kind of the age factors come in because you say, okay, well, you know, almost every time Messi, uh, Kimmich, Bruno are gonna be the top ranking because they're, you know, they're much more likely of winning dividends. Um, and that's when I go for a second screen of saying, okay, well, in terms of asset allocation, in terms of building portfolio around it, um, I don't wanna be only exposed to those people I mean, the first step is obviously to, um, you know, express that as a yield. Um, expressing as a yield, it's so like, sure, you know, you may have some 50p player who's got a bit of expected value. And therefore, if he did win, the yield would be huge, but it's associated with a much bigger risk. So I think like any like real asset allocation or portfolio management problem, you're you're really thinking about how do i diversify or how do i set up such that i have all my bases covered um so in this instance you know of course i want exposure to um to young players because intrinsic value is across the rest of their career right you can debate the nuances of that but um I'm providing metrics over what is their expected value over say six to eight weeks. And that will sort of change on a rolling basis, but really the the intrinsic value, like the price that should reflect that value should be reflected over a much longer window. Um, it's just, you know, it's, it's impossible to, to, and we can talk about this in a bit around you know, some methods that can help you get there, but it's very hard to have a long-term value of a player beyond, um, Sort of your more traditional discounted future cash flow uh, type model. So, I, I, of course, I have, I have, you know, Phil Foden and some of these big stars because they may not be showing the, the kind of um, consistency in PB scores that you get with a Kimmich. Of course, not, no one does, but they have so much upside. You know, you have optionality, if you will, because they've got an extra, say, five to 10 years in their career.
0: And what about MediaBuzz? That's really obviously like almost impossible to simulate, isn't it?
1: yeah, so about a year i guess a, almost a year ago now um in fact it, it was just after um football stopped for the first time, and, <laughs> what do I do now? <laughs> it, it out skewed yeah, right, it was a hundred percent skewed towards um media buzz, so um you know obviously the game then was to understand. You know, is there a way of predicting media buzz? And I played around with a few methods. It's, you know, it's, it's inherently a, it, in some ways it's more straightforward. In other ways it's harder. It's more straightforward that in that they provide you with a very clear rubric of how their media monitor works. You know, they literally give you the, you know, the, the sentiment formula, um, the, the sentiment dictionary, they use the formula, um, for how they calculate scores. So they give you kind of a lot of information about how you might, um, model it, but inherently it's the business of news. So unless you can, unless you're quick at capturing breaking news, it's very hard. So one thing I, I did, which worked okay was to, um, essentially plug into RSS news feeds, um, and capture, um, stories about certain players and then model their end of day media score as a function of the lagged news stories, if that makes sense. So if I want to understand media today, um, I'm collecting whatever news stories are coming from an RSS feed today, and I'm fitting a model based on past data on what that relationship between the end of day score is and current score. So it seemed to work okay, but it's just, you know, you you get a relatively predictable return, but um, it requires a lot of intraday trading. And I, I don't, sort of really have the time or inclination to do that um I, you know the reason the reason I, I focus on sort of long to medium pb right you know like long to medium term pb is is so i can you know have a medium term strategy it changes sometimes but your kind of core set of players won't fluctuate too drastically and then you can just kind of set it and leave it
0: right let's get into some nice comments and miscellaneous questions fi and tonic here from the fig patreon discord how are hedge funds finding the strategy you built for them on gamestop
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean um i could spend hours talking about this it's it's just been so fascinating um i mean you know net yeah no totally um i mean you know netflix have already bought the rights to the film you know, within less than a week. Um, it just makes the, the perfect, the perfect drama. It's just got this brilliant cast of characters. It's almost, you know, something like a, you know, like a James Bond film you've got kind of the Bond villain characters of some of these, um, hedge funds, this kind of big social movement to stop all these extended short positions out. I think that the really interesting thing about this story for me is, is the kind of what's happening in the background. Um, you know, it's been framed as this David versus Goliath kind of um, battle where you've got a bunch of people on Reddit who are um, sort of coming together in this kind of collective and are uh, you know punishing these evil short-selling hedge funds. Um, but there's just so much more kind of nuance to the story. You know, it's there's the fact that you know, the main application that they were using was this um this Robin Hood app. And you look you kind of look look into how this Robin Hood app um is being funded. It's being funded by some of the big some of the biggest venture capitalists um over in Silicon Valley, um, whose incentives are to push that company to an IPO. And how do they get that company to an IPO? Well it's by ramping up growth numbers and helping them kind of use this, uh, technology that gets, um, people hooked on, on trading stuff. You know, that's one fascinating, um, subplot. Another one is, you know, there's hedge funds who've taken the other side of, um, the Melvin capital trade. You know, once they saw this extended short position, um, and it started to move then you know the risk, the strategy there would be to just pile in and actually squeeze the shorts even more. Um, and you're starting to see some numbers emerge of some funds which are, you know, they made like 20, 30, 40% um, on this trade. And then of course you've got um, I don't know, if you've seen there's some other some of the big um, hedge funds who were um, involved in providing liquidity and um, sort of trading infrastructure for the Robinhood accounts. Um, who are bailing out, you know, these other hedge funds. Oh, it's you know, like, talk for ages about this stuff. It's, it's kind of fascinating, but I mean, the, to, to wheel it back to why is this interesting for the index, I think it just underlines, you know, how important, um, you know, a social community is and how powerful it can be. You know, you, we've seen how quickly sentiment has kind of shifted um, on the timeline um, you know, this month. And I think it just sort of underlines the fact that when you have, I think it's, I think it's the index's biggest asset. You have, um, an incredibly loyal, high affinity group of people who care passionately about the product. Um, and you know, it didn't take much for sentiment to turn. And of course it could turn again. Um, but it just kind of underlines how important and why they should really value that community.
0: For me, it's actually more important uh, or more interesting actually from a macro perspective that you have this really interesting movement that started with these retail investment apps, right? And then you've got this kind of social part of it, as you said, the social virality of it, the almost meme of investing. Um, And then you have that at the same time as something like cryptocurrencies, which are kind of often rubbished by uh, big finance and kind of like stalwart grey suit bankers, both exploding at the same time. And I found it quite interesting because it's like I've got friends who have never touched or even understood how to buy a stock before message and say – what's all that like uh, can you kind of tell me what what's going on here and tell me how i can actually buy some stocks not necessarily i want to buy GameStop, even though like uh even though i had quite a few mates uh message about that and i was like prop- like number one advice just don't do that <laughs> um so it, it was it's kind of interesting because it's like more people want to know uh how to make more money with their money and they're realizing that it's just not it's not only exclusively for the kind of financial elites to grow their wealth if that makes sense and look like football index isn't a uh you know it's not stock market it's not a financially regulated product but like you can make money from it and uh people are starting to realize that you can't make money without risk and if football index is something that people want to use as part of their like kind of uh play money or money that they usually, you know, uh bet or trade stocks on, then that is like a, a decision to make because it's kind of like leveraging risk and reward, right? Um slightly different. But I think it's uh I think it's really interesting.
1: Massively, yeah. I mean I mean on the on the social side of things, um I think you know, the epitome of this was, was the Dogecoin, right? It's a, <laughs> it's a, it's an inherently worthless asset, but it's just backed by this, um, incredible, um, you know, meme culture and social movement, which is really just kind of, um, grounded in this, this, uh, this notion of, you know, significant inequality, um, people, you know, people growing up and, becoming introduced to finance and investing in a world where markets are at all time highs and, you know, there's very little or no yield on offer. You buy any company, you're buying them at you know, crazy multiples. Um, so just, you know, creating their own way to um, to almost, you know, think about what, what return looks like. And of course, it comes with huge risks. And I'm, I'm definitely not saying go out and buy the Dogecoin. <laughs> um but I think, yeah, I think your your point is spot on. It's 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 creating a, a kind of new generation who are, you know, becoming interested in this stuff. And you know, people who've worked in finance for a while, um, they've all got their own, you know, respective battle scars of trades that have gone wrong or ideas that have gone totally wrong. But you know, you use it as a learning experience and then the next time an opportunity presents itself, you you're in a better position to to understand what's happening. And I'm sure there'll be a lot of um stories coming out of People who've levered, you know, levered up and bought the highs on some deeply out-the-money YOLO call and lost everything, and it's you know, it's pretty tragic. Um, I have zero sympathy for you know the hedge funds which are you know potentially go bankrupt or out of money here, but it's you know, it's going to be hard for people who've bought the highs and then see all their their money obliterated. But you know, there's going to be a lot of people who've made some some good money here um, out of nothing, um, and also you know, the one thing that everyone will take away is a, you know, it's a a learning experience if nothing else.
0: Just before we move on, I need to remind you about my Patreon. If you guys don't know what a Patreon is, it's where content creators create premium bonus and behind the scenes content for their audience. In my case, I'm going to be trying to help traders profit more on their football index journeys by adding as much insight as i can there's three pound five pound eight pound and twelve pound tiers, all with different great perks so do go check it out for the best football index content the ground if you head over to patreon.com forward slash f i guide so that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash f i guide you can get more information and join a growing community at the fig patreon loving all the patreon stuff at the moment doing the weekly monday podcast chatting the discord the webinars they were all awesome um so do go check it out and if you want to support me uh help me keep making all this content then uh, please head over there question here from index analyst fi has changed quite a bit since you started posting content in the summer given these changes do you think using data is more or less important than previously have you altered your trading strategy since joining
1: yeah um so i mean i probably caveat by saying you know i'm a card carrying data scientist so i'm always going to say that data is important it's kind of you know it's my currency if you will um yeah, I think there's definitely been some changes which have made it more challenging. Um, I think the question is which of those are structural versus cyclical changes um you know, there's definitely been like a greater volatility or, or kind of dispersion um, of scores and results, um which you know makes it inherently harder to predict, um not just at a sort of PB level, um you know, but even, Games itself, you know, just look at Man United, right? Um, and I think it was you or Panda was saying, you know, there seem to be kind of almost micro trends now, where you get a sort of four or five run, and then it kind of flips abruptly. But there's definitely like a lot more volatility, which I think makes it makes it tricky. Um, I think the other change which has made it hard is the five sub rule. You know, it means you get a lot of players who screen as being, you know, really, really um positive for PB and players should own in your portfolio. So like Robin Gossens, Gosens, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Um Guerrero as well, you know, they're they're players who who have amazing like P B characteristics, but they just get turfed off the pitch after, you know, 70 minutes. Uh, so they kind of lose the clean sheet or lose that extra boost. So there's been a lot of stuff like that that's made it kind of challenging. Um, I mean, I, as I said before, I, I I kind of took a bit of time to reflect on, on the strategy and I've, I've tweaked it a little bit. Um, but I think in essence, the, the approach is, is is kind of the same. It's it's essentially a medium-term Strategy where I'm, I'm simulating things at the individual player and individual game week, um, and then I'm you know creating these metrics of expected return, um, probabilistic expected return. Um, I'm I'm using without getting too technical, the approach I'm using is something called hierarchical um, modeling, which means um, I'm modeling the variation across players within players across teams within teams. So um, that tends to sort of screen out a lot of the noise to the extent that it is noise. Um, But yeah, it hasn't changed too much. Um, I I think definitely the, the, the move to get rid of IPDs, which was of course much needed just means everything is on, on PB now. Um, I think the, um, the introduction of the, um, the extra dividends um, I think you know, it's a little bit different in terms of how you would model it, but the way that I've structured these models and the fact that the output of the model is essentially a, um, an expected value score, that is inherently um, a measure that will also predict MDEs. You know, if, if someone is screening is expected dividends of 60p over the next six weeks, and the next person down is you know 55p, um, that just means that I'd want to allocate um, the capital, um, you know, 60, 55. Um, so I think, like, there's some subtleties of how the how the, the game's changed, but the underlying um, modelling approach hasn't. Um,
0: a question here from Mortz. How the hell... Uh, what the hell do we do with the pure IPD players now we have bundles of them in our portfolios? Do they actually have any value?
1: Yeah, I mean, IPDs was not something I spend a lot of time on um i was actually just getting to the point of trying to model um build a model um a separate model for for these ipd players where you're essentially just modeling goals plus assists and um you know screening for yield um and i just actually started that process when you know they came out that they're gonna remove the whole thing so the, the timing was fortunate you know i still have a a fair amount of my portfolio that are just you know, sitting there stale and are not totally worthless, but for sure, um, a lot of value has been sucked out of them. Um, I mean, the way I view it is, you know, on the one hand, I'm just kind of writing those off in the same way you would with any other bet. Um, but I would say that they they do have some inherent value, not as, of course, not as much as when the IPDs were there, um, you know, let alone the, the five times IPDs. Um, but they do have some inherent value in the sense that uh, the changes have shifted the focus much more towards a long-term bet. So, the strategy for me with these players will be, and you know, if I happen to be on the app when the game is happening and they score and they get, you know, that two-three p um, burst, you know, maybe on a day when they have an early kickoff and they're ahead of the PBE deadline you know, I would just be selling rallies of, of, of those players, um, because you know, the likelihood is over the course of their career, um, they will challenge for PB. Um, not everyone, but I would say most of them There's probably a chance at some point. Um, I certainly wouldn't be putting, you know, any, any more money into these players now, and I'd be trying to sort of get out the trades on anything. And, um, you know, the bulk of my portfolio is, is on the kind of big PB players.
0: And you mentioned in the intro when we were going back and forth that you thought it was the right decision to remove them. Why did you think that? And also, have you been impressed, surprised, uh, excited by the changes or the upturn since?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it was the right decision. I think you know everyone will agree that it wasn't sustainable. Um, you know, I'm not not an accountant and have no idea what the you know, back end of the business model looks like, but, um, just, you know, eyeballing the data and seeing the amount that was going in versus coming out on a, uh, kind of sustained basis. Um, you know, they had to go. Um, and I, th- I, I kind of, I also buy the argument that it probably was providing some downward pressure when people were refreshing. Um, it was providing an extra kind of limits on, you know, what is still a pretty liquid market. Um, so I think yeah, I think I had to go, you know, certainly the manner in which they communicated it, I think could have been better, um, you know, perhaps giving a bit more, more warning, um, you know, on the margin. Um, but I think generally, I've, yeah, I've been impressed with sort of the changes that have come in since the new year. Um, you know, you can tell that he's, he's a marketing guy and uh, it's kind of focused on comms and, you know, was was really sort of attacking a lot of the issues directly on its head and saying, um, you know, they didn't go as far as saying, you know, we fucked up in various dimensions, but there are, <laughs> there, there are a lot of, you know, false promises and um, by removing those promises and actually um, focusing on execution, um, I think it, it's better in the long run. Um, you know, the, the issuance curve stuff, I'm still wrapping my head around it a little bit. Um, I think it, Offers some potential. Um, I mean, I know you've um, sort of spoken, written a lot about it, and I, I kind of share the same view that it's, you know, it's potentially gonna um, shift some more upside potential to the, you know, people towards the peak. Um, I think my read on this is uh, it's actually it's it's uh, it's it's almost a volatility trade. By which I mean, if you're removing this huge wall of offers right at the all time highs and that kind of ability to mint there, then, sort of by definition, especially when you bring in scarcity and a fixed supply, by definition, um, those players are, are going to become much more um, demand sensitive as you get there. So, you know, a gimmick, if there are no more or well, very limited offers up there, then he, you know, it becomes a, a scarcity trade ultimately. Um, but then on the flip side, their ability to come in and, you know, in admittedly limited amounts, but also a, a fairly liquid market, the ability to come in at lower prices um, is almost potentially going to smooth some of the spikes of the lower price players. If that makes sense, like typically, you know, a typical strategy if, you, if you're if you wanting to get out of trade, of course, is that you sell, in, you know, you sell into any rally. Um, when the market's booming, yours So you know, whatever you have, whatever you want to get rid of, you sell it to that rally. So I think what they're potentially doing here is is giving themselves the optionality of doing that. So I think that the interesting trade if you could actually trade derivatives would be it's a relative vol trade shifting from the high price players at the all time highs through to the lower price. Of course you can't you can't take that strategy or build a position around it. Um, but I think that's my initial read on it.
0: Cool. Really interesting. I think uh, we're all looking forward and and, and really interested to see what happens on the 20th. So hopefully Football Index put out some kind of final ultimatum clarifying comms around it. So people stop getting confused about what's going to happen and we can't speculate anymore. We know what's going to happen and then we move on from it. F.I. Charlie has a question here. If you had to pick one method choosing players to buy, which one would it be? The eye test, you can only watch them play and see no historical data. Or the data method, you can't watch players, you only have to you have to buy them only purely through data. So,
1: you know, the reality is I, I obviously do both. Um, I don't think I've ever just bought a player purely on data. I, I would always watch them, even if it's just the kind of, you know, the highlights reel on YouTube that makes... Uh, <laughs> anyone look good um i think you know if if i were forced to pick between them i would always side on, on on the data just because the the scoring matrix is you know relatively esoteric um and just because you're a great footballer who's good on the eye doesn't mean you you suit the matrix and you know, you've you know, everyone's talked a lot about this um you know like i but that doesn't mean that um i i, I just focus on data solely, like I, as I said, I always will sort of look for, for highlights and often the other way around, you know, if I'm watching a game and there's a player who just kind of seems to, looks like they're going to be special or they, you know, they have that kind of factor that will make them good at some point. So like the example, classic example here for me is, is, um, Saka, you know, I'm a, I'm a Guna, um, you know, I absolutely love the guy, you know, you look at the wolves game, he could have had a hat trick after 20 minutes, a genuine like potential of being a potentially world class player in you know five years um, doesn't particularly score amazingly on PB. You know he has one dividend of course, but he's not going to screen that high um, relative to some of your usual suspects. But you know he's a player who, when you watch, you just you know you get the sense that he's going to be something special.
0: And isn't it a case, right? If you're quite analytical and you like watching football and you regularly watch football like that is data in itself right so you're gonna you're gonna be looking at these players and whilst you might not kind of annotate noun uh numbers and number of passes and stuff you can kind of get a feel for who would be good for this matrix right so for me i'd probably just watch rather than uh have like just a, t- a purely data-driven approach
1: yeah yeah i mean absolutely yeah. and it sort of comes back to what i said at the start like you know, the thing I love the most about this is that it's it's increased my enjoyment in a game. And, you know, I end up watching games that I never knew would exist before. And, um, yeah, it just made, makes the whole thing more enjoyable.
0: Our next question is from Fi Big Man Bet. Uh, what are some of the more quirky variables you use when you try and simulate, project a young player's career? For example, trying to predict a player like Greenwood's career ex-divs or expected dividends seems immensely difficult to me. Or do you avoid inexperienced players for that exact reason? It's pretty hard, isn't it, to model something that you don't have much prior information about, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I thought this is a. Great question. Um, I uh, I probably split it into two. I think it's, it has two parts. I think the first one is what type of quirky variables do you use, and the second part is how does that apply to understanding younger players and sort of predicting their their path forward. Um, so, in the first part, in terms of the variables that go into modeling, I already mentioned a bit before, but um, really the 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 variables that go into it are not that complicated. It's basically the scores themselves, the player, the position, the club, the opponent, whether it's home or away, the league, um, some of the underlying like understat, xG stuff. Um, but really, the I think the the magic or the voodoo in it is um is around the kind of modelling and simulation technique it said itself. Um, because what I'm trying to do is is model all of these inputs as conditional probabilities. So they're conditioned on the outcome of another one. So what does that mean? Like in in practice, it means, you know, imagine I'm, I'm modeling um, Bruno playing for Man United as a midfielder, playing at home against Southampton who are away in the Premier League. So I've got you know All of my data points there, I've got the score, the player, the position, the club, opponent, the location of the game, the league they're playing in. So what I want to do then is essentially model each of those inputs as what's called fixed effects. So what is the effect of Bruno playing um, at home? What is the effect of him being a Man United player? Um, but I also want to make those estimates conditional. So what is the effect that he's playing southampton and southampton are playing away and once you start to separate all of these different conditions and um, essentially context for the score that you're trying to model that's when you start to get interesting um, predictive signals um, because you're basically you're you're turning everything into a conditional probability so you know You're you're baking in all of this context around the game in which he's playing, and that's where you start to get the interesting stuff. So there's not a lot of complexity on the variables that go in. The complexity sort of comes from um, the modelling approach itself. And then on the second part um, around, um, you know, predicting a player like Greenwood or, or in general kind of younger players and projecting their career forward. I mean, yeah, as I said before, it's 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 inherently tricky because, um, you know, the game changes so quickly, tactics, um, let alone, you know, the, the kind of variation in an individual player. Um, I mean, one thing I've started to look at um, and done a little bit of work, which I'll, I'll probably um, send out at some point, is, um, is uh, essentially building almost like, sort of look-alike scores so it's, it's mm, i was that-
0: literally just gonna say i was just gonna say like is that something you could do where you think about kind of you kind of pre- you have to mix the art with the science right you kind of predict what you think greenwood's peak eventual outputs are going to be on specific statistical c- categories and then run them against you know uh the current outputs you have um with uh your kind of just general data
1: Exactly. Exactly. So um, there's it, a few methods that sort of attempt to do this. It's done a little bit um, in basketball where I think the stats are a bit more kind of advanced. Um, and some people have done it with football now. Um, but essentially what you want to do is, um, so, you know, there are hundreds of variables that you could use, you know, variables and metrics that you can use to measure how good Greenwood is, right? And then you can compare them across um, those metrics across players. You know, often what you'll see is is um, a kind of scatter plot of you know XG ninety or whatever on the x axis and um, XG build up on the y axis. You, know, you draw a line through the middle, and players which are above or below that line are, you know, good across those those metrics. Um, so that's like one way to look at it as a kind of quick like comparison, but it, it could, it run it very quickly runs into a lot of like methodology challenges, um, mainly because like which variables are you choosing? And the reality is that, you know, let's say there's 20, 30 variables that um, are all interesting. The reality is that all those variables are correlated. So when you're projecting just two on an X and an X axis and a Y axis, you're, you're usually just actually expressing some underlying or latent you know, factor, which is you know, their ability. And the metrics you're using are just correlated um, with that ability, so it's called, it's called, it's called some, something called um, confounding. So a way to get around that and something I've been trying to work on is, um, is essentially techniques, it's something called clustering techniques, where you take all of this, let's say we take those 20 variables, And then we basically compress them. We reduce the the dimensionality into sort of two or three metrics that essentially explain all of the variation across that full data set. So rather than just show Greenwood score across 20 metrics, you can get as much information by showing you Greenwood score across two or three metrics. So that's called dimensionality reduction. And then you go through the same exercise where you say, okay, well, let's cluster People based on that new, on the, on these new kind of composite metrics. And then this is when you can get into the kind of lookalike stuff. You say, all right, well, let's calculate these metrics for all players. Um, Let's take whoever is, um, you know, the best player that I want to predict, say Kimmich. And then you basically create a clustering technique to say, okay, what is the, what is the distance in this hyperplane? It's called, what is the distance? What is the, um, how different is uh, Greenwood to Kimmich across this like compressed data set? And the distance between those two players is essentially how alike they are. So to me, that's probably the best thing you could potentially do to say, okay, um, I understand that we have all these underlying stats, they're all correlated. Um, picking just two of them is going to bias your results. So let's compress them into a couple of metrics and then understand um, which players are closest to whoever is good on a certain metric. So I haven't finished that stuff yet, but um, I think it's probably the the closest you can get at understanding, you know, what are players today. It's very hard, of course, to say, okay, well, you know, we only have data on them today. We don't have a long time series because they're, you know, 18, 19 years old. Um, how is that going to play out in the future? I mean, who knows? It's an inherently tricky challenge, but yeah, I'd say this is probably the best way you can get it at it.
0: Before we move on, I need to remind you this podcast is brought to you by The Athletic. They're a subscription-based sports news site delivering in-depth sports coverage featuring football reporters you know and love like David Ornstein, James Pierce, Sam Lee and Rafa Honigstein. The Athletic is telling stories you won't find anywhere else, no ads or clickbait, just great sports writing. So for 50% off your annual subscription to the best sports writing around, go to theathletic.co.uk slash Fig and it comes to about two pound 49 a month if you go for their annual deal which is a massive bargain have you bought anything recently for more than two pound 49 machine
1: so i had my had my pants absolutely pulled down by um apple the other day um so my the case oh i lost the case for my airpods and you know how much oh th- mate i've done the same thing you know, yeah, so i've done the same th- thing charge for a it's ridiculous
0: yeah yeah i know So that was, yeah, that was considerably more than. It's a hell of a lot more than £2.49. Yeah, yeah, I know. Hell of a lot more.
1: Complete daylight robbery.
0: It's horrible, isn't it? Not a good feeling. But if you do want to bargain, £2.49 theathletic.co.uk forward slash fig. We've got a question here from Mary Dismo from the uh Discord forum. Uh Fig, given that he's built investment strategies for hedge funds and investment banks, does he genuinely believe that football index can have a place in high net worth individuals' portfolios?
1: Yeah, it's another good question. Um So I'd say the short answer is yes. Um, but there's a lot of stuff that needs to fall into place before that would be true. Um, it's a similar question to what the kind of crypto industry is going through at the moment. It's, you know, you're getting this big kind of on ramp of institutional money coming into the ecosystem and, um, you know, a lot of what's needed is, is, to kind of speak the same, to, to for crypto people to speak the same language as institutional investors. And I think it's probably the case here as well, because, you know, starting off by focusing on yield is, you know, the first step, an important one. Um, you know, being able to showcase the yields that are available, um, you know, is massive. But there's a few other metrics that you need to focus on. You know, what is what is the volatility? You know, what, what are the... Um, risk adjusted returns. Um, and how is it correlated? I think, I think you know, the, across most of these metrics, it probably scores okay. Um, in a, we're in a kind of, in a macro contract context where there's just, it's very hard to get decent returns anywhere, you know, y- yields and rates are very low. You know, as we said, there's massive valuations on, on a lot of the stocks trading at crazy multiples. So there is an opportunity and people, you know, investors and high net worth people are, are always looking for that kind of diversification play in alternative assets. And it's a booming industry. Um, but I think they need to, you know, sort of meet them in the middle, if you will, um, and start to speak some of the same, same language.
0: I think it's an interesting thing to think about. Like, could FI allow that? Um, could we have different regulations around gambling and uh, allowing that type of thing the way that gambling regulation is going in the UK it seems very 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 unlikely but in the future um, who knows right it could change toward that angle Um, or if uh, FI or SCA licensed I don't know
1: yeah I mean I'm I wouldn't say I'm so (laughs) Particularly knowledgeable about that stuff, um, but yeah, I mean, it seems like an opportunity, and, and I think you know there's a lot of companies popping up who are who are really doing that. They're, they're sort of stressing the diversification opportunities and the need for yield that many um, institutional investors have right now. So it seems like uh, something to potentially aim for, but I would say it's probably it's probably a long way off
0: yeah i i would presume so i mean it'd be quite cool though being able to have like a a fund that you could buy into on fi or even the kind of uh like a trading 212 where you can follow people's portfolios on um, Oh, what's that other site Etoro, where you follow other traders and stuff i think it'd be quite interesting
1: yeah for sure because if, you know if you look at t and, and Etoro, right it's i think their big innovation is that social element and you know <laughs> as we said already, FI has, has that going for it. And it almost kind of has that created organically, you know, with the kind of the big accounts going back to the days of people pumping stuff on the timeline, et cetera. Um, it kind of has that, um, you know, that, that embedded in it organically. Um, so yeah, I think that would be an interesting kind of value proposition. Um, I just think, you know, the logistics of getting to that place may be, may be tricky.
0: I think they would be very, um, kilp jam FI here. What methods might be used to model a player's career dividends? Do you think they would place more weight on modeling individual players or overall market payouts over what time frame can these be set to be accurate? And is this a risk for their business model?
1: <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I, I don't have a ton of insight on this one, to be honest. I, I, in terms of the first part of the question, um, you know, when you're talking about career dividends, I think the only real approach you can take is, is this kind of discounted cash flow model where well, you're basically saying, okay, you know, what are, what are expected payments over a season? How do I create a net present value and discount those by some kind of rate? Um, you know, bake in some kind of expectations around how dividends will alter, um, you know, try and model some time dependency and what the career arc looks like. Um, and that's kind of your metric of, you know, intrinsic value, um, which is, you know, I think the best you can do when you're talking about the career, you know, as, as to how it um, sort of affects the the business, model, I don't have a sort of ton of insight there, to be honest. I mean, the way, the one thing I would say is, you know, clearly they've removed a lot of liabilities. You know, they started by removing IS, removing IPDs, um, you know, whatever that was costing them. Um, and I think the interesting thing that I'm taking from some of the more recent changes is, you know, as I said before, they're, they're introducing um, like a lot more optionality. You know, they're, they're almost, um, I think adding flexibility um, for when they mint, you know, to the point around when the market is starting to boom, they can sell into that. Um, And um, yeah, so I think, I think it's very hard because I, you know, I haven't, I have a, Rough understanding of what the business model is, Um, but it's very hard to kind of extrapolate. um, You know how the how the value of those, um, you know, how the long term value of those expected dividends are going to sort of match up on balance sheet. Um, I think you want to you probably want to speak to an accountant to to better answer that question.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But in terms of like, if you were having to model what price FI should be selling bets for. On their end, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. Um, so, to me, I, th- I think this point around flexibility and optionality is important. There, you know, it's it's you. You want to be because they've introduced this idea of scarcity, which I think is a really interesting move. You know, the cynic may say that they're just adjusting the <laughs> the product to. You know, to mimic a competitor, which is recently emerged in the crypto space, and is you know, entire model is based around that. So I think maybe that's one thing that's going on. But I think the general idea of scarcity, uh, you know, alleviates some of the fears around oversupply, Um, and it sort of puts puts them in this position of um, having much more flexibility around you know when they do that. So to use the flexibility, um, you know, obviously they want to mint at much higher prices because, you know, that's obviously money going directly to them. Um, but equally, um, they can use it as, um, as a bit of a way of, um, not controlling the market, but, um, uh, facilitating the market, should we say? Um, so like an example of where this happens is with, um, central banks in like typical financial markets. So central banks um, have loads of um, reserves, currency on their balance sheet, um, and when you get volatility in the markets, they basically sell or buy into to the other side of that trade to kind of smooth their allocation. So I think potentially what might be happening here with the with the issuance announcements is something along those lines where they have um, flexibility in when they um, you know w- when they mint and when they um, need to take on. You know they obviously know their finances. Better than anyone else and if they need or don't need um you know to be covering stuff at certain periods of time so i think just having that optionality is uh, is probably a good thing
0: what do you actually think would likely be the case when a player has those million shares gone like what do you do you envision there will be any difference in the behaviors of, of traders towards that player do you believe that there will be any price wildness or volatility
1: yeah, it's interesting. It's um, I think it's, it's, it's almost getting into this idea of price elasticity. So, you know, the closer that you get to um, those million shares being issued, the more that it's, of course, going to be driven by shifts in demand, you know, because there's no supply. So, or rather the supply is other traders rather than uh, FI. So, you may get, um, and you know, I don't want to spend much time talking about so rare because it's not a podcast about that. But I think one of the interesting things you see if you look at that game is that um, it has scarcity baked into the product, and the kind of behavioural implications of that is that people start to hoard assets. So, you may get something similar here. You know, Sancho being the obvious one because he has. Um, you know, the, the, fewest shares to still to be issued. Um, and, you know, you could argue it's probably, he's probably already quite hoarded by, by um, some players. Um, I think you're probably getting acceleration of that as people are, uh, as players are sort of reaching those levels. Um, and yeah, the price action, I think will get very, very interesting because it just means that it's going to be entirely driven by trader demand shifts in demand in both directions. Um, versus when there's a kind of wall of money to be issued or to be minted um, for players who are in who have less liquidity, um, then that's probably always going to be in the back of people's minds.
0: And what about uh, liquidity? Right, we were talking about this off air a little bit, and you know I don't want to go on forever. Right, we haven't got any other questions, but I just want to pick your brain from a liquidity standpoint. You mentioned there's still a very very liquid market. Um, Attracting market makers is going to be tough, and there's a lot that needs to be done until then, right?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, I listened to the pod with um, um what's his name, uh, the market maker, um, Boise. Boise, yeah, um, yeah. I thought it was very good. Like, you know, he he was he was spot on. It's going to be really tough because, you know, right now the tools for what market makers need are just not in place. You know, when you walk around when you work on a trading floor with market makers who are doing this on a daily basis, you know, these are the people who have 16 screens and, um, you know, shouting on two phones all day, you know, like, what does that look like um, in the context of FI? It's it's kind of hard to say. And there's just a whole kind of suite of tools that need to be in place for that to be even possible. I think, you know, it looks like the the product shifts like the data center, for example, They're they're moving in the right direction and starting to, um, introduce these. Obviously, the you know the greater depth in the in the um, uh, in the bid offers um, is another step. You know, another thing that needs to be true. Um, but it's yeah, it's hard. Like I, I think you'd have to offer some kind of incentive um, to. Essentially, underwrite. You know, like you do with your sort of average punter who's using it for the first time. They had that. Um, you know, was it first five hundred quid um, underwritten? Essentially, you know, you probably have to do something similar with the market makers until because you know it's it's a very kind of um, esoteric product and has a lot of complexity to it. So it takes a lot of time to understand. Just how this thing works, let alone to actually take on risk and, you know, make markets and thing. Um, so I think you'd have to have some kind of, you know, incentive structure to make it reasonable. Um, you know, if spreads, if spreads are big enough and, um, you know, they can create enough liquidity and take two sides of the trade, then um, that's a pretty compelling, you know, value proposition where they take limited risk and they're just clipping the coupon or the bid or spread. Um, but it's, you know, it's the first mover may not be the best mover in this instance.
0: It's been a pleasure having you on uh, where can people find out more about you? Because I think that's all we've got time for.
1: Yeah. So you can find me at index machine on Twitter. Um, and I also started a uh, newsletter, which Initially it was supposed to come out every month, but then, you know, combination of laziness and not getting around to it means it's <laughs> a little bit more infrequent. But, um, there's a pinned tweet on the profile, um, on how you can subscribe to that newsletter. And that's where I'm, um, starting to output, you know, results and analysis from, from these simulation models and, you know, potentially more stuff. But yeah, at Index Machine would be the main one on Twitter.
0: Brilliant. Thank you so much for coming on, man. And thank you all for listening. We will have more Football Index podcast for you next week.